Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. If you at all followed the presidential election of 2020, or even if you were just alive during that time, you almost definitely heard claims of voter fraud or voter suppression coming from both sides. With another election coming up in 2022, I anticipate similar claims to reappear. Politicians at all levels of government have repeatedly claimed that the 2016, 2018, and 2020 elections were marred by large numbers of people voting illegally. Today, on May 18th, 2022, I'm excited to be talking to Walter Olson to address the myths and realities of election fraud. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies and the author of several books. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi, thanks for having me on. Before we jump in, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? I, the best writing on this I've seen recently was by my friend Megan McArdle, who writes for the Washington Post. And she's got a bunch of good advice, such as uh, <clears throat> pay people their compliments while they're alive uh, instead of uh, afterward. But uh, the one that stuck with me was uh, go to the party, even if you're tired, uh, even if it's tempting to stay home and watch Netflix, especially when you're young, go out to the party because be boring nine times out of 10. And then that 10th time, you'll meet someone. That is a good response. So let's jump in. My first question is kind of easy, kind of a blanket question. What constitutes voter fraud? Not as easy to pin down as you might think, because there's a lot of voter irregularity that is not voter fraud. And here you have, uh, it, because elections are, are full of rules, um, you know, I, one topic I've been writing about is when is it okay to uh, take someone else's ballot and put it in the mailbox? Well, it depends on what state you're in. Uh, in general, though, even if you are violating the, the law of your state, it doesn't mean that you're committing voter fraud because it doesn't mean that someone is voting who wasn't entitled to it doesn't mean that someone has manufactured a vote. Voter fraud is this narrower concept, often involving people who are not qualified to vote, people who have um, misrepresented things in order to, to register. Uh, is it voter fraud when someone who lives in, who has residences in two states, um, takes a very convenient uh, approach to which state they're in, depending on which state has the interesting election this year? And <laughs> all of us, you know, tend to, to know some people who have done that. Well, again, you're close to a gray area there because there you're getting closer to the line of votes that should not have been cast rather than just votes that were, uh, you know, that, that violated some te technical rule. Uh, and yet uh, you would have to interrogate the frame of mind. You know, maybe they did identify more with their vacation house that week. Uh, very hard to prove. And, and because it's hard to prove, it's hard to police. And the fear that the election has been stolen has 
seemingly clearly intensified since 2016, where pretty much every election is followed by accusations that the winner was elected fraudulently or voters were suppressed or something. Um, But before we talk about the recent elections, I kind of want to explore the past a little bit. I recently read this quote in the National Geographic that says, quote, gone are the days when bribes and voting by voice were commonplace at the polls. Today, secret ballots and improved security measures have largely ensured fair outcomes in elections, end quote. Was fraud in elections really prevalent in the past? And is it true that it's basically non-existent today? There's a lot to unpack in both halves of that, because if you look at American history, there was a lot of stuff that would set our hair on end now. You, there was intimidation where people were physically prevented from coming to the polls. People know about uh, the race line, but the, the, it was also true that you could just be on the wrong side of a party dispute and they would beat you up or they would uh, you know, physically block the roads uh, to, to keep you from going to the polling place or many other things. Um, ballot boxes being stuffed. Well, we think of that as, uh, I guess, if you've seen old Hollywood films, you know, there, there was some reference to the fact that, yeah, right down to the lifetimes of our, uh, you know, maybe grandparents, um, this was a very genuine problem in which um, there were some corrupt places, some of them cities, some of them small towns and counties, where you could not count on an honest vote. Uh, be, being uh, calculated. And so, um, uh, yeah, American history um, uh, has a lot of very ghastly episodes on this to the point where um, one place to start in talking about current fraud issues is gratitude that we aren't in a lot of the places we were in, in the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. So then I guess what really is the technology? What When did the change occur to get from when you were getting beat up and when there were bribes and all that stuff and like the age of Jim Crow where a lot of minorities were just completely basically barred from voting by other citizens? Um, what, what changed? You're talking here about dozens of changes, some of them legal, some of them in the enforcement of laws that were on the books all along, because, of course, it's always been illegal to beat up someone because of the way they were going to vote. The question is whether that was enforced or not. Uh, mm-hmm. The um, But also, uh, technology matters, and uh, the 20th century in particular uh, saw a move toward uh, voting machines and then toward better voting machines. Now, voting machines have come under a lot of suspicion we can get to that, but whether or not somehow someone could hack them, uh, you know, so as to change votes remotely from uh, even from some other country, uh, I think that those fears tend to be overblown. But uh, one of the things that machines did was simply, uh, as with double entry bookkeeping, often create two ways of checking a number, and uh, to the extent that you've got one register of how many votes there were kept by people on sign-in, and then another register of how many votes the worth of the machine is keeping, step-by-step, um, uh, step, it becomes harder to uh, tamper with it. Not impossible, especially in the early stages, but harder. And one of the reasons why the system, I think, has improved further 
in recent decades is that you now have uh, a better um, developed, I'm not going to call it a science, but a better developed art of um, general kind of auditing. And let me offer one example of this. The uh, people who are involved in uh, election watching, whether they be political scientists or campaign consultants or whatever, um, have strong incentive to want to find out if there has been skullduggery in an election and you know, 10,000 votes have been dropped in that don't correspond to, to actual people. And um, so they, um, they look at certain um, indicators and numbers um, and let me offer an example again, because it, it will bring us around to the 2020 election. Um, there were concerns that uh, uh, a state like Pennsylvania might have had a lot of um, uh, suspicion. Certainly, there were attempts to raise a lot of suspicion. And uh, one of the things that was available from the first 24 hours was the question of, okay, um, how did turnout uh, in each county or smaller community uh, behave compared with four years earlier. And turnout went up a lot, but did it go up more in some counties than others? Did the Republican-Democratic margin of votes change uh, a lot in one county, but not in other and, and similar counties? Um, did it change in some way that uh, was reflected only on some lines of the ballot, such as uh, uh, president, but not in others, such as town councils? Um, and again, um, a lot of ways of tampering with the system become much harder if you have to try to get around these uh, things, if you have to try to simulate ballots so that you're um, uh, voting for all of the different posts and uh, plaus somehow plausibly um, voting in ways that won't be noticed as bizarre for uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the lower level posts. Again, e each of these auditing methods, even the ones that look irrelevant, uh, will catch certain types of skullduggery. And that's why, uh, very early on, before the former president started most of his, uh, PR campaign about the election has been stolen, the election has been stolen, using these rule of thumb type of checks, the, Voting experts that I know generally looked at these things and said, uh, uh, there sure are not suspicious patterns in Philadelphia. For example, the, the Republican suspicion is always that votes are being stolen in Philadelphia. Well, in fact, Trump did better in Philadelphia, uh, which is in line with his doing better in big cities in general uh, uh, while, while he was losing uh, ground in the suburbs. Again, those indicia of uh, something bizarre going on um, we're um, telling a tale of, uh, you know, no indications of fraud. And so the litigation that resulted over a period of weeks and months, which was consistently lost by the challengers, was a little more understandable. Um, likewise, when there was an irregularity, and there was one county in Michigan that uh, misre misreported its vote in an informal way, the machines didn't malfunction. The machines were fine, but the human factor meant that someone transmitted the wrong numbers. That immediately jumped out, and everyone could see uh, that uh, that county had misreported, and it was corrected within hours. Uh, it was a small county in, in upstate Michigan. Um, and the conspiracy theories, you know, well, I guess that this is a topic of its own, but uh, each of the areas that I've talked about, whether it be Pennsylvania, uh, 
ballot stuffing or that Michigan County. Uh, once the conspiracy theories stuttered up, uh, they are still going a year or two later about both of those. And, and there's nothing to either of those cases. It, it's, it's just possible for people to talk themselves into, um, you know, what, what, talk themselves way out on a limb as far as, uh, you know, maybe this, uh, was the, you know, peak or revelation at some massive voter fraud system. Um, it's, um, we know more, uh, about voter fraud. Um, I mean, let me talk about areas where it's still to some extent a problem. There have been scandals. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was one in New Jersey, for example, uh, and there was one in North Carolina, and each of them was somewhat different. Um, usually it involves uh, access to a rogue uh, local um, official or a an extremely unprincipled single person. Uh, in North Carolina, the person was, uh, I think, a candidate, and uh, the election actually had to be invalidated because uh, they were uh, going out and, and collecting ballots in large numbers and and then doing uh, bad things in New Jersey or my, or is it Pennsylvania I'm, I should have this at the tip of my fingers but um, it was a case where uh, it was a very low turnout party primary which by the way the evidence is that those are more vulnerable to theft because uh, the turnout is so low that uh, th there are often just not many people stopping by over the day other than the uh, person running the polls. And in that case, the person used the long absences in which no one was walking in to uh, uh, go in. And, you know, the election official himself pretended to be a voter again and again and again. Again, you kind of have everyone in, in on the plot or else that sort of thing doesn't work. But again, when you're talking about a... Um, uh, very low turnout party primary election where, you know, only a, a couple dozen people may show up over the course of the day. Uh, you might be able to escape for that long without being watched, move to a more typical situation in which, uh, you would have to, uh, count on 12 different people not noticing that something funny was going on. And a couple of them might be members of the opposite party. And that's fairly typical in, uh, American election setups, which is that you've got multiple uh, people in the room and you offer the option for the other party to have a, uh, uh, an, an observer. Those were adopted because, by and large, they work very well at, um, uh, you know, scaring people out of the um, uh, practices that once went on in, in larger number. And um, and it also ties in with a point that um, is in, central to, I think, some of the recent debates, which is that um, you can't, the, the smaller the number of votes, the more impossible it becomes to attain perfect um, uh, prevention of misvoting. I gave the example of someone with two addresses uh, in two different states. Um, that's almost impossible to check, but on the other hand, each instance of it tends to result in one vote. Um, how easy is it to steal six votes? Well, you know, then you move up to a significantly different level and you can possibly try to get away with doing that, uh, with, uh, uh a fake voter, uh, at six polling places or a, um, uh, single polling place that you've, you've somewhat subverted. Uh, how can you steal a thousand votes? Well, we can talk about some of the allegations of how thousands of votes might have been stolen, but in general, schemes to steal thousands of votes 
either have to move into the subversion of substantial machine systems, uh, and those machine systems tend to get better every year um, at uh, de defeating or, or making visible such things, uh, or it requires the um, roping in an, of, an, of enough people into the plot that someone could talk. And uh, that latter one is really, uh, in some ways, the, um, uh, the key because um, especially if, if people uh, are uh, relying on, uh, uh, you know, ro roping in people willing to commit low-level crimes, uh, you don't always hear about that before it happens, but once an investigation starts or, or once people start blopping in one way or another, um, you tend to get, uh, uh, you know, so, so someone uh, willing to be interviewed and go on the record about it. And so after t the 2016 election, Democrats spent a lot of the time after the election trying to prove that the Russians aided Trump to be fraudulently elected. And in the 2018 race for governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams claimed that voter suppression cost her the election. And then in 2020, for the presidential election, Trump claimed that the Democrats engaged in widespread voter fraud probably more than thousands of votes even, and that's what lost him the election. And all of that led to, well, all of the stuff in 2020 led to the January 6th insurrection and the lawsuits by the Trump campaign against many states. Um, and so what, I mean, you kind of explained how difficult it would be to have large-scale voter fraud, but how realistic are these claims, and where did these anxieties come from? Let me proceed in order, because you gave examples uh, which are different from each other in a number of ways that I'd like to get at it in, in for, for a moment. Uh, first, the uh, fears of uh, Russian uh, tampering with vote cons. It's obviously quite true that the Russians meddled in the 2016 election in a different way. That is by uh, using their uh, information uh, resources to um, obtain uh, uh, private emails, which they then released with deliberate timing in order to harm the candidate that they wanted to keep from being elected. Um, there is nothing probably Illegal. Well, I don't, I'm, I'll leave aside whether there's anything illegal about that. It's not vote fraud. Uh, sorry, but you know, it's, it may be it may be espionage. It may be a subversion of an election. It's not vote fraud to um, uh, time the WikiLeaks revelations and 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 all the rest. Somehow or other, some of our friends on the Democratic side um, uh, transitioned from that to. Well, what if they had been meddling with actual vote counts by sending, um, you know, Bluetooth emanations into the voting machines? Well, the voting machines um, in the first place are not um, really particularly vulnerable to that. I mean, they, they, there are problems with election security um, that still need to be solved, but the um, uh, remote tampering uh, uh, has not proved to be one of the, uh, the big issues. And there really is zero evidence, and there never was any evidence, that the Russians or the Canadians or anyone else was tampering with vote totals. And yet you had millions of people who believed it, and you had um, 
you know, the, the, you know, talk show hosts and various others. And this was not the first time. If you go back to the earlier election, uh, George W. Bush, you had claims that uh, voting machines made by a particular manufacturer, Diebold, which makes a bunch of different business equipment, um, because someone found that uh, people connected with Diebold had made political contributions on the Republican side, an enormous edifice of conspiracy theory was erected on that. And you had, again, well-known talk show hosts and comedians. And I mean, I, why people would believe comedians on this is another question. But, but you, had, <laughs> you had widespread suspicion of uh, Diebold voting machines having somehow or other thrown the election. Again, no evidence whatsoever. And seriously undercutting the confidence that um, – the uh, uh, elections need if they are to be accepted by bo both sides. Now, moving forward to the Georgia um, election of 2018, you had different and I believe quite unsupportable uh, charges of voter suppression. Now, voter suppression, which we haven't talked about, is a different charge than voter fraud. Uh, it People arguing against certain ballot practices, such as uh, removal from the registration rolls of people who haven't responded to mailings and haven't voted in a couple of cycles um, is a typical issue that um, was, has been an issue all along for, you know, as long as any of us have been around, they've had to make decisions about how um, vigorously to um, scrub the voter rolls of likely non-voters, people who probably um are no longer there to vote, uh, but have um, been left on the rolls. Some states are vigilant about this, and when you knock on a door from a voter registration list, most of the names correspond to people who answer the door, or at least are living there. Uh, other states are incredibly lax, and many different problems result, and not only for door knockers who find that two out of three people on the, the lists they name uh, may not have lived there in years, but also for fears of uh, fraud and for all sorts of practical reasons, such as um, how do you calculate turnout rates if you have seriously outdated voter registration rules that include people who haven't lived there for eight years. Um, so Georgia, um, which ironically is far from the most extreme state on many of these different issues, but Georgia um, uh, was, wanted to... Um, uh, go in what has long been accepted as, you know, one legitimate direction of, you know, we want up-to-date voter rolls. We want to give people a chance to uh, respond if, if we're thinking of eliminating them, but otherwise they have to re-register. And they, and they can check online to see whether or not they've been eliminated if for some reason they haven't voted in several cycles uh, and worry that their names have been taken off and they've missed all the mailings, you know, that they still can check. The... Um, well, to, for Stacey Abrams, a lot of these things and, and many miscellaneous issues, such as the moving of um, polling places. Uh, again, if you talk to local election administrators, uh, there are nonpartisan reasons why a tremendous amount of this stuff is in constant flux. Uh, a, the, the last place you used for a polling place won't let you use it again. I mean, because so many of these are private places like churches or whatever, you know, they, they uh, or it's no longer big enough capacity uh, because, uh, uh, so you move to a larger space or 
uh, voting has been declining and now everyone has cars. So you don't need to put everything within walking distance. Well, these to me are judgment calls. And to some of Stacey Abrams' followers, they are deliberate ra- attacks on, uh, racialized attacks on voting, um, where if you um, uh, consolidate the number of po- polling places in a county from eight to four, uh, you do that in order to make it harder for people to vote. Now, <laughs> it's very hard to win the battle of your motivation is terrible. No, your motivation isn't terrible. You know, to me, uh, most of these issues are um, ones where, you know, a plausible uh, explanation has usually been offered for why they want to move the voting place or have uh uh, uh, you know, a different approach to early early voting or whatever, or early voting just to, to explore one or two of the issues on that. Early voting makes voting more convenient, and um, there isn't really all that good evidence that it increases the overall amount of voting because it tends mostly to t- take votes from election day. But even so, you might think, well, that's good too because it means election day is less crowded. That was certainly an important argument during the pandemic when people didn't want election day to become a super spreader event. Um, might not really increase the total amount of voting. But on the other hand, running two weeks or three weeks of early voting has its own costs. In particular, uh, you've got to get those community volunteers out all of a sudden, you know, perhaps a couple of dozen days uh, instead of just uh, a, a few days. So, so you run into practical problems. Where Georgia found itself um, in such Straits was that every one of these issues was being uh, prosecuted in the court of public opinion as if it were, uh, you know, flaming racism and attempts to suppress people's votes. Um, um, you know, and Stacey Abrams pieced together arguments, even on her own terms. I think they were very poor arguments because the numbers involved were simply too small to have overcome the amount by which she lost the election. But the uh, I want to update it a bit because I've kind of taken Georgia's side. Uh, and in the 22 uh, election cycle, uh, uh, we are speaking before the Georgia primary, but not before a lot of the Georgia early vote. And the Georgia early vote under the same procedures that have been attacked as voter suppression uh, has boomed. You know, huge numbers more of, of Georgia voters are, are engaged in early voting. Uh, so the su- suppression, if suppression it was, sure didn't work. Uh, you know, that people, and, and, and if you think about it, especially with things like early mail voting, um, uh, you know, there is no way that someone who uh, is intent on voting and is paying uh, reasonable attention to uh, making sure that um, uh, the, the docs are in a row as far as requesting an absentee ballot, uh, making sure they're still registered and so forth. It's very, very unlikely that those people will actually be prevented from voting. Debates about convenience are worth having, but they are not the same as debates about whether people are being disenfranchised. And that's the confusion that we've seen so much of in uh, the past couple of years. It seems to me as though almost all claims of voter suppression assume an inherent bad intention, even if that's not necessarily the case. I mean, President Biden called the recent voting reform in Georgia Jim Crow 2.0. How accurate is that comparison? My heart sank when he came out with that rhetoric because, um, and of course, we saw the uh, various other 
effects such as attempts to move the all-star game and, and all sorts of um, exercises in polarization and demonization. And it was pointed out uh, at the time that uh, many northern states uh, like New York, like Biden's own Delaware, um, generally liberal states, generally states that uh, no one is up in arms about or, and that no one believes are uh, uh, behaving with, with racial motivation actually have stricter restraints on a lot of those same things like early voting. They have uh, uh, remarkably um, old-fashioned rules, and uh, there is no movement to um, force uh, states like New York to uh, become as liberal as Georgia, as Georgia appears to be around the middle of the pack. Uh, but again, you have political advantage, which causes people to jump in. Uh, the debate uh, largely proceeds among journalists and, and commentators who appear to have, you know, it's perhaps it's unkind for me to say that they were born yesterday, but they aren't doing the homework of calling uh, county election administrators and saying, is this new? You know, what, how has this issue been handled in the past? Um, because if they did, they would find that most of these issues um, have a long history. People have um, uh, been talking about the trade-offs involved. They've been talking about uh, ways of balancing convenience and volunteer availability and um, the various problems of uh, early voting where people, uh, you know, might regret an early vote because of late breaking news or um, uh, because their candidate dropped out uh, uh, af after they had already voted. Uh, the um, There are reasonable arguments on both sides, and yet that didn't come through. And, uh, and let me say, um, you know, I am one who uh, generally supports modernization. I think that uh, we should be glad that we're um, increasingly seeing experiments like Colorado. I think Oregon is another state that are, are moving to by mail elections as the general standard. You know, they um, it takes a few years or a couple of cycles to work the kinks out, which is one reason forcing states to move over to that very quickly uh, led to a lot of practical glitches. But um, but I'm not one who thinks that we have to go on idealizing. Uh, the New Hampshire election day, I mentioned New Hampshire, which has just about the most old-fashioned rules where they want everyone to show up on election day and kind of wave to their neighbors and, uh, you know, uh, uh, say hello to the people electioneering. I would say, you know, that, that's, that's lovely, but it doesn't necessarily fit all modern lifestyles. I mean, Co Colorado is kind of the definition of a place that has modern lifestyles and where um, the um, uh, convenience of being able to uh, vote uh, without setting aside the the, the visit time uh, is is probably more highly valued. So, what are the biggest, or I guess, loudest allegations of voter fraud, and what are your responses to those claims? Well, it's at this point that we really have to get to the claims about the twenty twenty election because they dominate mm -hmm. the landscape. They they. Um, th they're like cannon fire. They are so numerous. They, um, they flood the zone. Uh, you know, you refute two of them and another three of them are, uh, thrown back at you. And, um, where I start, 
on that uh, is with the cases that went to litigation, because they are the cases where uh, we've had uh, the best chance to assume that uh, both sides had a chance to, to air their factual contentions and bring witnesses and where uh, judges who we uh, you know, swear by their jobs to be uh, to bring impartiality to it. Uh, have a chance to consider it not on the basis of memes passed around social media, but on the basis of what the parties can prove. And so, the voter fraud and the voter the voter irregularity claims, because there were a fair number of those too, uh, that were brought after the twenty twenty election, fell flat on their face. Uh, you will hear sometimes from the Trump people that the courts never reached the actual facts because they threw the things out on procedural grounds or standing grounds or jurisdiction grounds or other lawyerly things. Uh, not entirely true. In Wisconsin, for example, uh, you had a, a judge saying, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, I can pronounce on the evidence and they didn't have any adequate evidence in this. In other cases, the uh, the, one reason the case failed was that they simply could not make out uh, any uh, plausible uh, series of facts that a jury could credit. Uh, and so right then and there, uh, you have um, a lot of the biggest claims um, uh, involving the states that were closest, whether it be Pennsylvania, Arizona, or others, um, you um, you have the judges looking at them and rejecting them. Then you proceed to um, uh, the things that it might take more time to um, check. And here I think about the Arizona situation where members of the legislature uh, hired a private group, a private group that was apparently very predisposed to find fraud if they possibly could, uh, while at the same time, the uh, Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, that's the biggest county in Arizona, um, did its own uh, very exhaustive investigation and audit um, of the county where you would probably have seen irregularities if, if they, you were going to see enough to change the election. And the legislature's own uh, Stop the Steal consultants um, uh, you know, couldn't find them any, and that collapsed in in um, uh, you know a, a, a pile of dust. And meanwhile, Maricopa County was coming out with a long, uh, you know, carefully reasoned and um, uh, you know f full of evidence reason why um, uh, the um, there is no reason to find the results in that. Um, Leading county suspect. The election, by the way, was presided over by a Democratic registrar of votes, and uh, but he was defeated by a young Republican. The Republican presided over the audit, which found uh, no um, misconduct or, or misconduct of votes. So uh, those sorts of backward looking audits. And Georgia, again, had a hand recount. Now, a hand recount is exactly what it sounds like. You know, you don't um, simply count on the machines uh, uh, having tabulated it correctly. You you look at all the individual ballots, and the Georgia hand recount confirmed again and again and again. Um, now, we could spend all day going over uh, uh, theories from the wacky theories about Dominion voting machines, uh, which led to um, 
uh, defamation cases, which judges are allowing to go forward against various uh, conservative media that spread those claims, you know, very um, kind of textbook defamation in that they took a named private company, accused it of you know, gaudy, baroque fraud on the, you know, the very issue where uh, being trusted, you know, is, is a precondition for their selling any more of the product. Uh, and uh, it all blew up. No one ever showed that there was anything wrong at all about Dominion voting machines, uh, beyond which the <laughs> there were funny details, such as in Wisconsin, the counties that used Dominion voting machines tended to be small ones where Trump won. Uh, but anyway, the um, uh, so it all was just a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to be as caustic as it deserves. It was appalling disloyalty to the interests of their listeners, to the interests of America. Uh, it was an attempt to undermine public confidence in something that um, where it's very, very dangerous to undermine it. Uh, and then recently, or m most recently, as of the time we're talking, uh, there's an attempt to get behind the, the idea that uh, ballot harvesting somehow made the difference. Now, we haven't talked about ballot harvesting, and it's an interesting issue. Again, I, I think that there um, uh, are uh, there, there's a real underlying set of issues that it is appropriate to be concerned about. There, ballot harvesting is the process uh, is is the practice by which um, uh, one person's vote, absentee vote, um, uh, can be given to another, and then either dropped in the mail or uh, bundled and taken to a drop box or a, a, a polling place. And uh, this practice in the states varies very substantially on that. Uh, a typical law in many states is uh, you can only do this for a family member, or you can only do this maybe for three and no more than three people. The idea being that that's enough to cover the cases, the occasional disabled person uh, who needs a caretaker to do it, uh, the occasional um, uh, you know, homebound person or, 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 or uh, busy person who, who relies on a spouse or a parent. Um, the uh, but California uh, legalized much more permissive um, uh, ballot harvesting, and it was used as a political tool. Uh, Democrats used it to go out and have you know hire someone to collect a hundred or two hundred or more ballots. Uh, it was done through unions. It was done through various politi political organizations, and the dangers are real, in my view. That there are dangers of. Um, uh, people being improperly influenced by someone standing over them who may be a union steward, or I mean, in fact, California went back and banned uh, the, the the element by which bosses could demand that their workers come in uh, with absentee ballots. I mean, obviously, that's going to be misused. You know, so it's nice that bosses can't. As I understand it, unions still can, or uh, you know, lo local political bigwigs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I would worry about it in a lot of other contexts. Uh, uh, you know, you may have a patriarch of a family um, who you know wants to look at everyone's vote and then drop all fifteen of them uh, in the mail. I don't. I like the old idea of privacy. The, the old slogan used to be: "It's just you alone in the voting booth." Uh, you know, powerful people in your life may be expecting you to vote one way, but you can vote your conscience because it's just you alone in the voting booth. So. So there's improper influence and there's privacy that are at risk when you allow people to uh, intrude too much into other people's voting processes. All that having been said, there is no evidence 
that uh, ballot harvesting made any difference in the presidential results in 2020. And uh, there is a movie that has come out that uh, argues the opposite case. Uh, I have seen enough uh, in the way of reviews and uh, responses from organizations quoted in it and whose data is, is supposedly used to to feel quite confident in saying, uh, no, this is barking up a wrong tree. Um, uh, many of the things that it tries to cast doubt on, and indeed the, the first one that anyone tried to check was someone casting five votes in Georgia. Um, Georgia election authorities uh, said, okay, well, this was in this film, let's check it out, found that it was entirely legitimate. It was a person casting five votes by members of his household. And um, so the um, and, and one of the things to bear in mind about ballot harvesting is that uh, even if you believe that it uh, is worth regulating, even if you believe that uh, it might be worth going after violations of the regulations, uh, courts will very often say that doesn't invalidate the vote. Uh, if someone, uh, if if the voter was acting in good faith, and the uh, meddling neighbor said, uh, "Hey, you know, uh, I'll mail this for you," uh, and and the meddling neighbor broke the law by collecting fifteen ballots that way. Um, those votes are not thrown out if they were from someone who was entitled to vote and were and then the person didn't realize that you know someone else in the chain was uh was was not acting their proper part so it's very unlikely that um it um uh you know made you know even one one hundredth of the needed difference in any of the states it's um uh it's just a red herring what are the implications of this trend of losers claiming the election was stolen or of voter suppression, voter fraud, particularly for society, but also the institutions in play here? It has terrible implications. If you look at the uh, elections themselves, uh, you find that uh, higher percentages on both sides, but especially these days among Republicans, but it also has happened among Democrats, uh, are uh, unwilling to accept the verdict of elections, uh, believe that you know maybe something bad happened and I don't have to treat them as having been legitimately election, elected. But that has lots of consequences. One of them can be that people uh, are less likely to vote. Uh, indeed, there's speculation that this affected the double Georgia Senate runoff uh, where Republican turnout drooped after the 2020 election and two uh, Democrats got elected. So one thing it could do is demoralize people into not voting. Uh, but another thing that it does is to take them one step toward um, the other results of considering uh, the government illegitimate, which is uh, uh, breaking laws, which is um, potentially engaging in um, you know riots or uh, civil disorder, uh, it, you know, not stepping forward in uh, the ways in which a healthy polity does to uh, feel that we're all Americans and we, uh, much as we may disagree at election time, uh, we have the wider things that unite us and we want to, um, you know, we want all Americans to uh, th thrive and prosper uh, and because we appreciate the, the free country. Now, those listeners who were uh, alive or, or, or um, were, were at least teenagers during 9-11 may remember a couple of weeks in which the fact that there were outside forces that were willing to kill thousands of Americans 
kind of made people wake up and say, look, you know, the differences we were just arguing about between Republicans and Democrats is not that they're unimportant, but uh, we need to hang together against some of the things that threaten all of us. And then over time, these things dissipate and the polarization gradually takes over again. And the, uh, uh, the urge to win the short-term battle against someone in an election uh, begins to seem bigger than the things that we have in common. But um, in distracting us from the things that we have in common, there are a few things that are as uh, effectively toxic as treating each other as having stolen elections. Uh, it should be saved for, uh, it's, it's a very serious accusation that should be saved for instances where we are very sure uh, that we have a lot of good evidence and uh, examples that people know well uh, from both parties. Uh, in 1960, uh, Richard Nixon's advisors said that irregular votes in a couple of states uh, you know, were probably big enough to give him a chance to uh, contest his ne very narrow election loss to John F. Kennedy for, for a long time. He's, he uh, correctly, I think, said, no, it, that would be bad for the country uh, to, uh, and, and it, it's too uncertain whether or not we actually have a case that would change the result. Uh, same thing with Al Gore's loss to, to George W. Bush. Uh, uh, he could have made a much bigger stink about uh, Bush wasn't legitimately elected. He decided for the good of the country, uh, uh, that's not the way that uh, the next four years should should be framed. And again, he stepped back. I, it's one example from each party, uh, but they were putting uh, the good of the country first, I think. I wish we had more time to explore this issue further, but we only have time for one last question. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Well, thanks. When I was starting out, I wrote a lot of um, slash and burn pieces. Uh, sometimes they were book reviews. Sometimes they were uh, investigative journalism. And I'm proud in one sense uh, in that I generally haven't reversed the the judgments and the verdicts. And I don't think the reporting was wrong. But I also kind of enjoyed smashing the crockery, if you see what I mean. I enjoyed mm -hmm. the idea that um, the piece would be more entertaining for um, putting someone in the public stocks and uh, making them look very foolish and very bad. And obviously, there are some targets that are worth doing that too. But as I got older, I came to value kindness more. I came to realize that uh, when you write a uh, hurtful but clever and entertaining uh, piece, um, there is someone out there who remains hurt after the cleverness and the entertainment uh, have been forgotten. So I don't do that as much anymore. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight. And I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.